This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Murder Methods, Mass Murder, where I detail some of the most infamous cases of mass murders in history. In the case of mass murderer Howard Unruh that I detailed in the first chapter in this series, we saw that his motivation was his hatred of the people in his neighborhood who he believed were gossiping about him. He started out with specific people in mind that he wanted to exact revenge upon, and then, during his murder spree, began to randomly shoot others who were strangers to him. But some mass murderers are not really targeting individuals as much as they are society in itself. Some of these revenge killers come to believe that the world in general has failed them. Their killing sprees are targeted at random strangers who, in their twisted thinking, are representative of the society that has thwarted them. I will give one additional warning above and beyond our usual disclaimer. While I won't go into graphic detail about this case, the overall details are somewhat difficult to hear. But to tell you the true story, they must be covered. Men, women, and children were all victims. If you are sensitive to this topic, please use discretion when listening. Feel free to skip over the details. I won't be offended. This is Chapter 3, The San Isidro McDonald's Massacre. James Huberty had an appointment in court on Wednesday, July 18, 1984. There was no issue about getting time off of work, as he had recently been let go from a position as a security guard. That morning, the 41-year-old drove north from his home in San Isidro, California, to Claremont Mesa to appeal a traffic ticket. He was accompanied by his wife, Etna, and his two daughters, ages 10 and 12. He had to wait for several hours for his case to be called, but he didn't seem to mind, and was rewarded for the wait when the judge suspended the $75 fine. After leaving the courthouse, Huberty and his family stopped at a McDonald's restaurant in North San Diego to have lunch. They then decided to make an impromptu visit to the San Diego Zoo. They spent a couple of pleasant hours visiting the various animal exhibits before returning home to San Isidro around 2.30 p.m. While on their way home, Huberty spoke with his wife about his anger and frustration concerning his life circumstances. While just a dozen years earlier, Huberty was working as a welder at a good-paying job, owned his own home near Canton, Ohio, and had even purchased an investment property, a six-unit apartment building, he now had been forced to take a low-paying job as a security guard. He had not even been able to hold on to that position and was now unemployed. He and his family had moved to a series of apartment buildings as their savings dwindled and were now living in San Isidro, a town located on the California-Mexico border, in another low-rent apartment building. While Etna tried to reassure her husband that things would improve, Huberty commented, society had their chance. Etna was used to hearing her husband make strange statements and dismissed this one as she had many others in the past. At about 3.45 p.m., Huberty emerged from his bedroom wearing camouflage pants, a maroon shirt, white Adidas-type shoes, and sunglasses. Where are you going, honey? Etna asked him as he headed out the door. Going hunting humans, he answered. Once again, she ignored his bizarre statement. Huberty got into his old Mercury marquee and drove the three short blocks away to the McDonald's restaurant, located at 522 West San Isidro Boulevard. With him, he carried a plaid blanket, which held a 9mm semi-automatic pistol, a 9mm Uzi carbine, and a 12-gauge shotgun. He also carried a cloth bag that held hundreds of rounds of ammunition, 
He entered the restaurant just a couple of minutes before 4 p.m. The San Ysidro McDonald's was one of the busiest in San Diego County. It was located just off Interstate 5 and only three miles from the Tijuana-Mexico border, the busiest border crossing in the world. On this day, like most, the restaurant was crowded with families who brought their children to eat and to play in the play structure attached to the restaurant. Individuals who stopped in for a bite after crossing to or from Tijuana, and this being a hot summer day, by children who'd come with other family members or arrived on their own to purchase a cold drink or an ice cream sundae. James Huberty walked in and immediately approached the counter. He pointed the shotgun at 16-year-old employee John Arnold. At the same time, the assistant manager, Guillermo Flores, called out, John, that guy's going to shoot you. Huberty pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. As he began to inspect his gun, Arnold walked away, thinking it was some kind of sick joke. The restaurant manager, 22-year-old Neva Kane, walked up to the counter and towards Huberty to see what he was doing. Huberty then took the Uzi and shot off several rounds up into the ceiling before aiming and firing at Neva, killing her. He then fired the shotgun into Arnold, wounding him. Now the restaurant was in a panic. Some people froze, others dove under tables and chairs. Huberty started yelling expletives and told everyone to get on the floor. He called the customers dirty swine and said that he'd killed thousands in Vietnam and intended to kill thousands more. Huberty had never served in any branch of the service. Victor Rivera, 25, was enjoying a meal with his wife Maria, 23, and their two children when he saw the man begin shooting. Victor yelled at him while his wife dove under a table, shielding her children. Victor begged Huberty not to shoot anyone else, to which Huberty screamed at him to shut up and shot him with the Uzi. Victor fell and Huberty kept shooting repeatedly into his body. The coroner would later determine that he'd been shot 14 times. Huberty then turned his attention to the customers who were trapped under booths and tables. He first found a group of women and children. Guadalupe del Rio, 24, had come across from Tijuana to have a late lunch with her friends, Aris Delcy Vargas, 31, and Gloria Ramirez Soto. When they heard the first shots, they had dove under a table and as far to the wall as possible to hide from the shooter. He saw them and began firing volleys at them. Gloria was unhurt because she was shielded by the other two women's bodies. Guadalupe was hit several times, but not seriously wounded. Arisdelsi Vargas, however, being the most exposed, was shot in the head. She would die the next day, the only person killed that day that would live long enough to reach the hospital. Jackie Wright Reyes had been shopping with her friends, Elena Colmanero, 19, Imelda Perez, 15, and Claudia Perez, 9. Also with Jackie that day was her 11-year-old niece, Aurora Pena, and Jackie's 8-month-old baby, Carlos. After shopping, they stopped into McDonald's to eat. they just received their order when the first shots were fired. They all dived to the floor. Jackie tucked her baby underneath her and also shielded 11-year-old Aurora with her body. Huberty targeted his second group of women and children now. He killed Elena with one shotgun blast to the chest, then killed 9-year-old Claudia as well, firing several shots into her body. He continued firing rounds into the group. Imelda was only hit in the hand. Aurora was shot in the leg. He then turned to the young mother, Jackie, and shot her 48 times. Baby Carlos began to cry, and Huberty turned to him and fired a bullet into the baby's back, killing him. Ronald and Blythe Herrera had taken their 11-year-old son Mateo and Mateo's friend Keith Thomas, age 12, to McDonald's. When the shooting started, Blythe hid with her son Mateo under one booth, and Ronald and Keith dove under another. 
Huberty fired shots into one booth and then the other. He killed both Blythe and Mateo. Keith was shielded by the body of his friend's father. He was shot in both arms. Ronald would be shot seven times, but would survive. Omar Hernandez, Joshua Coleman, and David Flores were all 11 years old and best friends. They rode their bike this warm July day to the donut shop and then decided to stop at McDonald's for ice cream. As they were dismounting their bikes in front of the restaurant, Joshua heard someone yell out to them from across the street, but couldn't make out what was said. At that moment, shots came from inside the restaurant and through the plate glass window they were standing in front of. The boys fell in a tangle of bodies and bikes. Joshua knew he was badly hurt. He was lying on his back, having been shot several times. He saw the other two boys lying covered in blood. He said David never moved, and he believed he was killed instantly. Omar tried to get up, but he would also die on the sidewalk. Huberty had now begun firing through the large glass windows and doors into the sidewalk and parking lot in front of the restaurant. Miguel Victoria, age 74, and his 69-year-old wife, Aida, were just walking up to the front door when they were sprayed by a shotgun blast. Aida went down, and Miguel in horror screamed, God damn it, you killed her! He also went down from his injuries, and in his last moments, moved close to his wife, wiping blood from her face, and cursed the shooter. Huberty moved to the doorway and yelled angrily at the old man before shooting him at close range, killing him. A couple, Maricela and Adolfo Felix, and their four-month-old daughter arrived at the McDonald's parking lot at 4.10 p.m. As they exited the vehicle, Huberty approached them and shot the family. Maricela was shot in the face and neck. The baby was hit in the neck, chest, and stomach. Adolfo was struck in the chest and head. As Maricela began to collapse against the car, she thrust her baby into the arms of a fleeing woman, shouting in Spanish, Please save my baby, before losing consciousness. All three members of the Felix family would survive, although Maricela would lose an eye and the use of one hand. Because of the pandemonium and confusion and the number of injured victims, the family would be separated, being shuttled to three different hospitals. When Maricela became conscious after several days, no one knew where her baby was, or even that she had a baby. It would be three weeks before the baby and her parents would be reunited. During that time, the Felixes didn't know if their child was alive or dead. Now Huberty walked back into the dining room and reloaded once more. He brought a radio with him, and witnesses later said he turned it to a music station. Music continued to play as he fired off rounds in the restaurant. He calmly walked around the restaurant firing more rounds into some who were already dead, and also to others who were clinging to life. 62-year-old truck driver Gus Versilius, who'd stopped for a cup of coffee, lay moaning from his injuries when Huberty came upon him and fired again into him, killing him. He then found and killed 45-year-old Hugo Velasquez. Huberty then suddenly leaped over the counter and into the food prep area and found Guillermo Flores lying on the floor with the phone to his ear talking to the police. Also crouched behind the counter were cooks Alex Vasquez and Albert Leos, as well as cashiers Margarita Maggie Padilla, 18, Paulina Aquino, 21, and Elsa Barbora Fierro, 19. Huberty was surprised to see them and muttered, Oh, there's more. And then angrily, you're trying to hide from me, you bastards. As he raised the Uzi, they scattered. Flores ran down a set of steps to an emergency exit and outside to safety. Alex Vasquez made it to another stairway to an exit and also escaped. Albert Leos had also tried to run, but was grabbed by one of the panicked girls and was caught in the gunfire. 
He was wounded but managed to crawl under a table and survived. The three girls, however, all died from multiple gunshot wounds. Leos then crawled to a basement utility room where several employees were hiding. He would survive and later became a San Diego police captain. After feeling so helpless during the massacre, he would dedicate his life to protect and serve those who might find themselves in a terrifying situation, like the one he'd been placed in when he was only 16 years old. Meanwhile, the first calls to police have been placed by 4 p.m., just minutes after Huberty entered the restaurant. Units arrived by 4.04 p.m. The first officer on the scene, Miguel Rosario, called in shots fired at an officer. He returned fire and called for backup. A fire truck with paramedics arrived at 4.08 p.m., but Huberty began shooting at the vehicle, stopping their approach. Life flight emergency crews were en route, and nearby emergency rooms were all alerted to be on standby but police and paramedics could not approach to help the victims without being fired on from an unknown person or persons inside the building. By 4.10 p.m., SWAT teams were on the scene, and sharpshooters were positioned around the building. A SWAT team sniper, Chuck Foster, was positioned on the roof of the post office next door. Huberty, not deterred by police presence, continued to pick off victims killing 19-year-old Jose Perez, who had been previously wounded, as well as his friend Gloria Gonzalez, age 22, and another woman, 18-year-old Michelle Carncross. Police and SWAT teams believed there may be multiple shooters. Huberty was using several types of weapons, adding to the confusion. While it was still light out and the restaurant had large glass windows, they had been shattered by gunfire, making it almost impossible to see inside. There is still debate as to whether the police knew that shots continued to be fired. Police spokespeople will later claim that they believed all the victims had been killed soon after the shooter arrived. Witnesses inside would say that the gunfire continued sporadically for over an hour and that the police had to be able to hear the gunshots. Victims and the families of the deceased would criticize the police department for not taking action sooner to end the shooting or come to the aid of the victims. On several interviews that I watched to research this episode, I heard it said that the police didn't want to anger the shooter by approaching aggressively until they could be sure he wouldn't retaliate by taking out more victims. While I don't want to unfairly criticize the police department, because it's clear that they had a difficult situation on their hands and had to determine quickly the most effective and safest course of action, my initial thought was this. If you had a gunman in the building and you took a shot at him, how likely is it that he would become more aggressive and more bold? If bullets were being fired at him, wouldn't it be more likely that he would take cover to save his own skin, thereby possibly giving hostages a chance to escape? Just a thought. I'm no expert. The SWAT team commander wanted to make sure that a clear shot could be taken at the shooter without endangering other lives. They had a description of the gunman by 4.05 p.m. from witnesses who were able to flee as soon as the shooting began. Finally, at 5.13 p.m., more than an hour after the shooting started, the commander gave the green light to the sniper team. One minute later, Huberty shot off one last volley out of the window and towards San Isidro Boulevard hitting and injuring a passing motorist on the interstate. At 5.16 p.m., two sharpshooters on the ground fired two rounds at the suspect in response, but didn't hit their target. One minute later, at 5.17 p.m., SWAT team marksman Chuck Foster, positioned on the roof of the post office, saw Huberty inside the restaurant sitting on the counter. He looked to be reloading his weapon. He jumped off the counter and walked toward the front door. 
Foster could see Huberty clearly from the waist up. He fired a single shot from a telescope-sided 308 caliber rifle. The bullet entered Huberty's chest, severing his aorta just under his heart and exiting through his spine. He fell backwards and landed on the floor directly in front of the counter. He died at 5.17 p.m., finally ending the siege that had lasted 77 minutes. Huberty had fired off at least 245 rounds, killing 21 and injuring 19. When questioned about her husband's actions, Etna would deny that he had ever seemed dangerous or homicidal. She would characterize him as frustrated by his circumstances and depressed. Once an investigation was conducted into his background, however, another picture would emerge. James Oliver Huberty was born in 1942 in Canton, Ohio. He contracted polio as a child, which caused him to have crooked knees and mild spastic paralysis at times. His father purchased a farm in Amish country, and his mother refused to live there. Instead, she left her family when James was seven years old. She claimed to have a religious calling and left to become a street preacher with a Southern Baptist organization. It begs the question to whether his mother and or father had mental issues given their extreme ideals. James would later share this in common with his parents, although he would be estranged from both his mother and later his father. He would be angry at God, blaming him for taking away his mother. Huberty would always be known by neighbors, co-workers, and classmates as a loner. He could also be described as antisocial to the extreme from the reports I've read. He never liked being around people, but didn't seem to be shy or insecure. He simply didn't like most people. One thing he did like, however, was firearms. Everyone who knew James Huberty knew that he often talked about guns. He knew a lot about them and was also a collector. He was described as a loner with an explosive personality by those who had dealings with him. Huberty entered college in 1962 to study sociology, but soon left that program to attend the Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Sciences in Pennsylvania. He met Etna Markland at the first school he attended, and they married in 1965. He received his license to become an embalmer and got a position at a funeral home, but the funeral director told him he was not cut out for the work. He was a good embalmer, he said, but he just couldn't relate to people, which was a skill he needed to have to be a funeral director. Instead, he took a job as a welder at the Babcock and Wilcox utility plant in Canton, Ohio. His boss said he was good as a welder because he could, quote, pull that mask down and be by himself. He made a good salary as a welder and purchased a large red brick house in a nice neighborhood and then a six-unit apartment complex as an investment property. The couple had two daughters by 1970. Times were good, but Huberty was angry when his father remarried in 1972, and he broke ties with him, only allowing him to see his granddaughters twice in his lifetime. He continued to dislike and distrust others and became interested in the survivalist movement. He shared their philosophy of freedom from government intervention and the sanctity of private land and property ownership. He raised what police in the area described as attack dogs, put up numerous no-trespassing signs, and stockpiled food, weapons, and ammunition on his property. He began getting into disputes with his neighbors about the aggressiveness of his dogs, as well as his complaints about others' animals entering his property. He once threatened to shoot a neighbor's poodle for pooping on his lawn. The neighbor intervened and convinced him not to shoot the dog, 
but Huberty told him if he ever saw the dog or his neighbor on the property again, he would kill them. His wife, Etna, was ever his defender. When he would talk about killing people, she would say that he was a nervous person who couldn't take much pressure. He also acted out violently against his wife, and the police were called more than once during these altercations. She once filed a report with the Department of Children and Family Services, claiming abuse by her husband, in which she reported he messed up her jaw. She took to finding ways to calm him down when he would begin to become enraged at one thing or another. One strategy she used was to read tarot cards for him to tell him his future. This would often temporarily pacify him. Times were relatively good until his company was hit by an economic slowdown, and he was laid off in November of 1982. He had immediately tried to sell his properties, but since so many people were forced out of work in the area, he had no luck. He started another job, but that company, too, soon had layoffs. He was unemployed for much of 1983, and his wife said he was suicidal and once threatened to shoot himself. She was able to get the gun away from him and talk him out of killing himself. While he might have been depressed, Huberty was mostly enraged at the world, believing that society itself was to blame for his failure to make a living and provide for his family. His co-workers remember him always talking about shooting somebody. He blamed several factors for his problems, including former President Jimmy Carter, the Trilateral Commission, and the Federal Reserve Board. Later, reporting on his anti-government attitude, some would label him a communist. Etna disagreed. If anything, he was a Nazi, she clarified. In the fall of 1983, without having resolved the issue about their properties, Huberty moved his family to Tijuana, Mexico, for some unknown reason. Within a few months, they moved to the border towns of California in San Diego County. They moved from apartment to apartment in Chula Vista, Imperial Beach, until finally setting in San Isidro, a town predominantly inhabited by Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, as it shared a border with Mexico. He continued to search for work, but was unsuccessful. He could no longer apply for a job as a welder, as a car accident he'd been in had caused his polio symptoms to return. His hands often shook, and he was unable to do the precise work required of a welder. He continued to become angry and lash out at his family, even threatening them with a gun at times. Etna said she never took him seriously. He never spoke to neighbors who were mostly Spanish speakers anyhow, but neighbors recall him going around with a frown or a scowl on his face all the time and never looking at them. Etna knew he was unhappy and asked if he wanted to return to Ohio, but he said there was nothing there but cold winters and high utility bills. It's curious as to why he picked California to relocate to, since it's one of the most costly places to reside with high taxes. One of the highest costs of living in California is in San Diego County, although the border communities are less costly than other areas of the county. Huberty applied for a job with Bernstein Security Services in Chula Vista, but the company secretary recalled that a job wasn't offered to him and that the word no was noted in large letters across his application. The interviewer told her that Huberty had an attitude problem. He finally found a job with another security company and worked guarding a condominium complex, but was fired just a few weeks later and one week before he took an arsenal into the local McDonald's restaurant. James Huberty's wife, Etna, received death threats after the massacre, and her daughters were harassed at school. They moved twice the year after the shooting. 
they settled in a community 20 miles east of San Isidro. Etna sued both McDonald's and her husband's former employer, Babcock and Wilcox, for over $7 million. She accused McDonald's food of containing MSG, which she said caused her husband to act out violently. She also accused his former employer of exposing him to high levels of lead, which caused his erratic behavior. Her lawsuit was unsuccessful. She died in 2002 of breast cancer. Huberty left no letter and told no one specifically about his motivation for choosing McDonald's as the target for his murderous rampage. However, many have speculated that the international fast food chain has always advertised itself as a place for families and is a symbol of the American dream realized. Ray Kroc was a simple traveling salesman before purchasing his first restaurant, and it succeeded at becoming the world's largest and most profitable restaurant chain. Perhaps like Huberty had complained, he believed the American dream was stolen from him, and he was exacting his revenge on one of its symbols. One of the most disturbing aspects of this crime is it seems that Huberty went out of his way to target women and children. Of his 21 victims, 16 were women or children. It's possible he was taking his hatred and anger at his mother leaving him on innocent women and felt envy and rage for the children who still had the love and care of their mother. Whatever the motivation, the fact that he brutally murdered innocent women, children, and even babies was a cowardly and despicable act. Keith Thomas, who was saved by his friend's father, Ronald Herrera, while Herrera's son, Mateo, and wife, Blythe, were killed, suffered from survivor's guilt, as did many others who survived the massacre. He said he'd been a normal, happy kid before the shooting, but as a teen, became angry and was, quote, messed up for a time. Maria Rivera, who was able to save her two young daughters, but lost her husband, Victor, says that the shooting destroyed her life. She suffers from depression and anxiety and can't get over the loss of her husband. Maricela Felix still suffers from pain in her head from where she was shot and lost an eye and the use of one of her hands. Her baby daughter, Carla, recovered fully from her injuries and has no memory of the shooting or her time recovering in the hospital, although she still has a large scar on her stomach as a testament to that terrible day. Her mother has an identical scar. Joshua Coleman, the little boy who was most identified with the massacre, after a picture of him lying bloody on the sidewalk next to his bicycle was widely circulated, is now 44 years old and a married iron worker with three young daughters. He only had this to say, I guess life goes on. The McDonald's restaurant was closed the day of the massacre, never to be opened again. Out of respect for the victims and their families, McDonald's suspended their advertisements for a time. Their biggest rival, Burger King, followed suit. McDonald's franchises set up the San Ysidro Family Survivors Fund. Joan Kroc, the widow of Ray Kroc, McDonald's founder, visited the site and gave $100,000 of the $1 million that was raised to help families with burial costs, counseling for survivors, and financial aid for relatives of the victims. The restaurant was bulldozed to the ground on September 26, 1984. It remained just a flat concrete pad for several years. It was not fenced or otherwise off-limits. People would sometimes drive up to it and sit there either out of curiosity or to pay their respects. One person who visited the empty lot was my older brother, Victor, 
who remembers doing just that a few years after the shooting. He told me that he sat in his car in silence, thinking about the tragedy that had occurred there. He had a connection to the restaurant as he had worked at a nearby McDonald's in 1981 and 82 when he was in high school. He had visited the San Ysidro store several times when sent to borrow supplies. Nearby locations often helped each other out as needed. After a few minutes, he said, he began to feel sick to his stomach. He drove off and never returned to the site again. The empty lot at 522 West San Ysidro Boulevard continued to be a sad reminder of that terrible day until 1988. The property was given to the city by the McDonald's Corporation with the stipulation that another McDonald's nor any other restaurant could ever be built there again. The city built an extension of Southwestern Community College on the property. A memorial to the 21 people who died in the massacre was erected on the site. 21 hexagonal granite pillars ranging in height from 1 to 6 feet is dedicated to remembering those who lost their lives so tragically. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. I have one exciting announcement this week. Once Upon a Crime was featured in an article in Entertainment Weekly this week. Check out the March 17th issue to read the article, When Devotion Turns Deadly. It tells the story of Rebecca Schaefer and mentions Once Upon a Crime's episode on Schaefer and the series Fatal Fans. Get your copy today. You can support this podcast on Patreon. By making a pledge starting at only $2 a month, you'll get free swag, discounts on merchandise, free bonus content, and much, much more. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to become a supporter today. If you can't pledge money but still want to support the show, I'll give you an option that won't cost you anything but a couple of minutes of your time. Rate and review Once Upon a Crime on iTunes. It helps so much with our ranking in the iTunes charts and helps others to find the show. Just click on the stars to rate, and if you really want to be cool, write a short review as well. I'll be picking reviews at random to give away stickers and other OUAC swag starting next week. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.